Testament reading comes from 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. I told Matt that we had to have a woman to read this passage. So don't run out the door. We're going to try and contextualize this passage like we did last week in our rather lengthy study of women in the Bible, two whole weeks. Uh, This is coming to a conclusion with probably the most difficult uh, passage uh, in Scripture, not just about women, but one of the most difficult textual passages. It's one of the most difficult to actually interpret. So we're going to move on. I, I realized that as I was preparing this week that there's so much more to say than we could do in two weeks about women in the Bible. But it is a bit of a controversial topic, and I'm tired of being stressed out on Sunday mornings. So we're going to move on. We're going to start uh, our Advent series a little bit early. Um, Advent doesn't start until the following week, but we're going to launch into a new series next week that will be a little bit less controversial, I think, but hopefully just as interesting. As we prepare to engage in this passage, let's pray together. Father, I pray that your spirit would guide us, that you would pour out your grace. Many of us woke up this morning with so many questions. We walked in here with anxieties and worries that plague us about the coming week, about the coming year. We're harboring confusion about who we are and where we're going and doubts about whether we'll ever be the person that we want to be or that you want us to be. Some some of us are hurting very deeply inside. We feel abandoned. We feel like leftovers. And we need to sense your presence and your grace. Though we may not be fully ready for your response, all of us have questions and all of us need answers. And would you let us sense somehow that you can be trusted and that you have answers, and that you want our good, and that you want us to find you in all of our questions and concerns. Lord, whether it's the first time this morning or as one more step in a lifelong quest, let us open ourselves to your word and to your gospel, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I saw a cartoon a number of years ago that depicted um, St. Paul arriving by boat on the shore uh, near where he had planted one of his churches. And as he gets off the boat, he sees a group of women protesting, holding up picket signs. Paul is unfair to women. Paul is a chauvinist pig. 
And he gets off the boat and walks into the crowd, and he says, I see that you got my letter. I was hoping you'd laugh at that. It's, church humor is, you know, not the best humor, but sometimes it's appropriate. Now, I notice the incongruity of me standing here as a white male adjudicating not only what Paul has to say, but also essentially what half of the people in this room can and cannot do in the church. But I'm who you're stuck with this morning, and I do want to be your advocate. And as we approach this one specific text in 1 Timothy, I want us to try and remember, try and listen to the storyline of the Bible, a story that I believe in the very earliest pages defines or identifies the curse of gender inequity and very poetically begins to undermine it, saying that it is a result of the fall, not of the goodness of creation. We're told in Genesis that as a result of sin, that woman's desire will be for their husbands and they will rule over them. You see, that's the solution, that's the, uh, the problem, sorry, not the solution. It's a statement of what's wrong in the world. The writer of Genesis is setting the tension that only the gospel can finally and fully relieve. In other words, we're challenging patriarchal assumptions, not based upon the whims of modern culture, but with the subversive notes of the Bible, even though, admittedly, these notes can sometimes be played in a rather minor key. I want to say and submit to you that the gospel itself is profoundly egalitarian, and it pulls down social hierarchies, and it heals division. And it's why we can't talk about this in the abstract. We're not changing our view to be on the so-called right side of history or because we feel like we're more enlightened or more progressive, but we believe that Jesus was profoundly good to women, that women thrive under His care, that He is a Messiah that lifts up and redeems women and gives them places of honor in His church, and also because the average human is now a poor woman of color in the global south who lives in a very stratified, most of the time, uh, society based upon gender. According to a United Nations report, women form just over half the world's population but work three-fourths of the world's working hours. That's hard to believe. They receive one-tenth of the world's salary. Women own 1% of the world's land. Women form two-thirds of illiterate adults. And together with their dependent children form three-fourths of the world's starving people. Three-fourths. To make a bleak picture worse, women are subject to domestic violence at home, rape, being trafficked into sexual slavery, being prostituted, being murdered by men without justice in percentages that boggle the mind. Add to that racial and ethnic and, yes, religious prejudice, this adds further disadvantage to women, as does class privilege that disrespects particularly women who are poor. Every culture has its own different dynamics, but what is always true 
is that it is always, always women who are regarded of least value. And anyone with an internet connection has seen the last few weeks that women, even in the developed world, are still preyed upon. And we've seen Christians once again come to the immediate defense of the wrong people. And I think this is a failure of basic Christian discipleship. It's a failure of the church actually taking the Bible seriously and reading it with the best lens. I want to ask, is the gospel that we teach, is it good news to women everywhere? Is it still a word of revolution as it was in Jesus' day? What interest would impoverished, abused, marginalized, neglected women have in a church that offers spiritual hope but invites them into an ecclesial structure that more or less mirrors the power structures that serve them so poorly? Do we have a gospel that speaks to more than just women's afterlife, but also their actual life? During its early years, Christianity taught a spiritual unity that at least mitigated against the harshness of the Roman and the religious law, in which women were considered non-citizens with no legal rights. Inequality was everywhere in the system. Men's adultery was presumed, while women's adultery was punishable by death. Over against this culture, the ideal of the early church is captured in the words of Paul in Galatians that we looked at two weeks ago. There is therefore now no Jew and Gentile, no slave or free, no neither male or female. And in Ephesians, Paul says, be subject to one another in fear of Christ. In other words, it's not just the woman who is to submit, but the husband. This is incredibly provocative. But then we have this very same Paul writing to Timothy, who is ministering in Ephesus, and he writes what appears to undermine those two principles and to uphold the status quo rather than to challenge it. So we need to look at this text, and it's a difficult one to interpret, as I indicated earlier. Even the most conservative commentators admit that, and because of that, we should pause before making sweeping universal pronouncements about what women can and cannot do based upon this text alone. Because apart from the lexical or textual difficulties, we also have to determine whether Paul is giving instructions that are highly situational, dealing with a specific issue in Ephesus, or is he laying down universal norms that should be followed for all time. There are parts of this letter immediately in the surrounding context, actually, that we assume are situational. As um, Emmeline read, he commands Paul, or he commands men, to lift up holy hands as they pray. But as far as I know, churches generally don't demand that and don't require that. In fact, if it happened at InTown, I'd probably be excited because it almost never does. You know if someone raises their hand here, they're, gonna, they're having a great day. He also forbids women adorning themselves with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. That seems pretty clear, doesn't it? But even in conservative and traditional churches, this seemingly clear command isn't policed and it's not followed. 
So how is it that women not wearing gold or pearls is situational and negotiable while them not having authority and not teaching is universal and binding for all time? Well, the argument is made that while parts of this passage might be culturally situational, Paul appeals to the creation order to justify the, the, t- the teaching that women cannot have authority. In verse 13, for Adam was formed first. But when are, since when do Paul's ethical commands require him referring to some outside or external authority or to the creation order? And if you go back to the Genesis account, you don't see hierarchy, but you see mutuality. Eve is taken from Adam's rib, from his side, not from his head to rule over him and not from his feet to be ruled by him, but from his side as a partner. They are united and become one flesh. They are both created in God's image and then called together as partners to fulfill the creation mandate. So why would Paul use a conspicuously egalitarian passage to make a hierarchical point? Well, there's an interesting answer to this, I think, and that is that Paul is writing in a contextualized, stylized, and very literary way to address something that is going on in Ephesus at the time that causes him to press pause on women in leadership. There's a reason to believe that Paul, in other words, is correcting an abuse rather than laying down a universal norm. According to historians, there was a high-powered cult that was mainly made up of women. It was called the Cult of Diana that existed in Ephesus and other places. The leadership was primarily women, and many of these women were wealthy. And so as the gospel took root in Ephesus, it's not too hard to imagine that these high-powered women would assume that they should lead in this new religious movement centered upon Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that women shouldn't assume authority. They shouldn't usurp leadership from qualified males just because they're experienced leaders in a different context. Instead, they are to learn, verse 11. Now, if this is true, and many historians think it is, this explains Paul's reference to the creation order in a much better way than him using it to justify hierarchy in the church. Notice this. When you see this, you're going to see Paul for the, not as a male chauvinist, but for the great writer that he actually is. In the creation account, Adam alone receives the instruction from God about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God tells him, you are not to eat of it, or surely you will die. But everyone knows that Eve is the one who is tempted. And when she responds, she says this. She misrepresents what God said to Adam. She doesn't know the words very well. She adds something. We are not to eat of it, and we're not to touch it. In other words, she wasn't instructed very well. Adam had failed in his role to take that instruction to his wife. She was still immature in that context and unable to teach. He doesn't refer back to this episode to justify a universal limitation of women teaching and preaching, but to issue a temporary injunction against untrained, immature women, assuming 
leadership. Now, why do I say temporary? If you don't buy what I've said so far, because some of it is bound upon, uh, based upon historical scholarship that you may not have access to or may not find fully compelling. Are there other reasons that we should say that it's temporary? I do not permit, Paul says, seems pretty definitive. But all translations are interpretations. There's no one-to-one relationship between Greek and English, and sometimes they have to make choices based upon the tense and the context and so forth. And this is an interpretation that hides some textual difficulties. Epitrepo is the word for allow or permit, but it's not at all clear from the tense and the way that he uses it that Paul intends a universal ongoing prohibition. Every occurrence in the Greek Old Testament, that is what Paul would have been reading and how he would have learned to use certain words and understand their context. In every occurrence in the Greek Old Testament, epitrepo refers to a temporary situation, every one. And in virtually all of the times it's used in the New Testament, this t- in this tense, it's used to denote a specific or short duration of time. I do not permit conveys a universality that's simply not in the text. Far from saying women are simply unqualified because of their essence to teach, he says they are to learn. A better translation that does better justice to the verb tense and context would be, I am not now permitting. It's a temporary injunction. But there's another huge interpretive difficulty And that's what Paul means by the word authority. Oftentain is the the underlying Greek word. Our translation says, assume authority. But the underlying word is what's called a hapax legomena. That means it doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. And so to understand what probably was in the writer's mind, you have to look at the way it's used in the surrounding culture. And unfortunately, this is a very rare word, and so there's only a couple of times that it's used in classical Greek in the same manner that we could then understand what Paul is trying to get at and why he uses a word that he never uses anywhere else. Outside of the New Testament, this word never designates positive authority. It almost always designates a negative taking of authority. That is, those who serve their own interests, those who take authority improperly. That's how it's used in every single case in classical Greek Then it's used in the same way, in the same tense. Now, Paul often refers to exercising authority. He talks about it in this very chapter, earlier in chapter 2, when he talks about kings exercising authority. He never uses this word. He always uses exousia. He's simply not talking about women holding authority in a proper way. He's talking about women undermining authority. He's talking about women taking authority improperly. It's the only reason he uses this particular word. If he was talking about regular authority, most likely because he uses it dozens of times, he wouldn't use authentane, but he'd use exousia. Now, I hope that you see 
that we're not treating the Bible as a wax nose, that we can just refashion to say whatever we want to say so that we can be relevant to the current culture. The Bible is not ours to refashion however we see fit, but we're doing our best to try to read the Bible in its context, to deal with the lexical challenges and to be able to reclaim its message against a culture that hasn't made room for women and has read its prejudices again and again into the text. Now, I said at the outset that this issue is so much deeper and broader than just the interpretation of one verse or answering questions of church policy. The larger question is whether we'll choose to articulate the gospel's radical inclusion and empowerment of people whose voice is diminished. And can we be advocates for women in the way that Jesus was if we circumvent their service in the church? And I would argue that we can't because doing so, in doing so, we're living out and embodying the results of the fall, not of new creation. We're saying that we would like to uphold and institutionalize the intrusion of sin into the world rather than the liberating reversal of new creation. Jesus constantly broke cultural norms to show that in his life and death and resurrection that new creation was invading and beginning. Contrary to acceptable norms, he spoke to women on the street. It's unheard of. Contrary to cultural norms, he had private conversations with women who weren't his wife. Think of the the woman at the well. Contrary to cultural norms, he taught women in public and in private, allowing them to be part of his inner circle and sitting at his feet beside the male disciples. Never happened. Contrary to cultural and religious norms, he allows a hemorrhaging, unclean woman to touch him Contrary to cultural worldly norms, in a world where a woman's testimony was not admissible in court, he entrusted women to carry the message of his resurrection back to the male disciples. And Paul actually concurs. He doesn't deserve the picket signs. He tells us about Phoebe, who served as an official deacon in Romans 16. He tells us about Junia, who was a female apostle. He talks about these multiple women who were his fellow workers. He talks about Priscilla, who is the teacher of the great Apollos. Are we really being faithful to the Bible if we adopt interpretations of this passage that clearly contradict examples of women doing the very thing that we say this passage is prohibiting? Can that be faithful biblical scholarship? Now, as I've been reflecting on this text, as we conclude with mountains of commentaries around me, I've been wondering, how do I preach this text in such a way that it's not just an interesting exegetical exercise that supports the position that I want us to take as a church, but how do I preach it in such a way that it's good news to women? And it occurred to me to text my wife, Katie, who's in Atlanta right now, and say, How is the gospel of Jesus good news to you as a woman? 
And she didn't answer fully, but what was interesting is that I had to ask that question, that I thought to question my own abilities as an embodied male to understand fully how Jesus and His gospel would be good news to women. Well, I don't know if I can get all the way there, but I want you to hear this, that sisters, you have absorbed a message that you are inferior, and you live in a culture that substantiates that message and institutionalizes it over and over and over in almost every part of the world that you inhabit, including the church. Sometimes this message is overt, sometimes it's subtle. But even in 21st century America, that message and its tangible effects is radically alive. And the church has too often been a co-sponsor of this message, couching it in biblical language so that you not only have believed it, but you've been taught to tie your own subordination to biblical authority. And to challenge it means that you are not reading the Bible well and that you're not a faithful follower of Jesus. But I believe that the liberation and exaltation of women and of everyone is embedded in the gospel message. And to say that the Bible has afforded women unprecedented privileges and social status in its context, only to see women's status diminished by the church after the Bible is written, is one of the great tragedies of church history. Unlike other males in his day, Jesus honored women. He elevated them. He ministered not only to their soul, but he spoke into their social situation. And I want you to leave here, sisters especially, believing like never before that Jesus sees you and he loves you and he gave his life for you and that his church, this church, will do its best from now on to reflect that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I just pray that you would make us to be a church that loves the gospel, that loves the good news and believes it for everyone. Father, I pray that we would radically empower those whose voices are diminished, those who don't have power in the outside culture and world, and those who historically haven't been given a seat at the table and haven't been given a voice in the church. Father, I pray that we would do this not to be relevant, not so that more people will come because it's one less hurdle, but, Father, to do so because we believe the gospel. I pray that you would help us to be like your son and to love people well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.